One thing we want to keep in front of all you guys um, throughout the year in build is that there is a progression of shepherding that, that takes place. And that shepherding is first and foremost shepherding of your own heart. Anybody who wants to be leading others wants to be caring for their own heart well. And the way we do that is through reading God's word and forming ourselves with truth, hopefully on a daily or very nearly daily basis, communicating with God in prayer. Um, and the guy who does that well is equipped to function well in his home. He's equipped to uh, relate well to roommates if he has roommates. He's equipped to relate well to parents if he has parents and kids if he has kids, um, wives if he's married. The guy who's well equipped to do that is equipped because he's taking care of his own heart. And then when he has a, a home that's well shepherded, he's ready to shepherd in, in ministry in a church. And whether it's formal ministry in some leadership position in a small group or whatever else, or informally just ministering to guys when you gather together, like we're doing here, uh, the best way to have a, a fruitful, positive, impactful conversation with guys is to come from a home that's functioning well, which comes from a heart that's functioning well. Um, so that is the way that Grace Bible Church grows more and more strong, the first three disciplines. It also grows strongly when a man shepherds his heart to understand the qualifications of a deacon in a church. A, de- a deacon is just a person who serves. It's a servant layer of leadership in the church that exists between the elders and the, and the body in the church. And we hope that every man in this church is, is aiming at being deacon qualified. You can find the, the specs for that, the qualifications for that in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. And um, we want every man at this church to be prayerfully examining themselves and how they stack up in light of those. And the standard is real high, and we're all about 18 rungs below the standard, but the idea is that our feet are pointed in the right direction and we're prayerfully pursuing those qualifications. And then lastly, the, the fifth discipline here that we want every guy to be to be aiming at is the hermeneutic discipline. And, and that is coming to a better and better and better understanding of how to deal with God's word, how to handle God's word when the pages are open before you, um, either in your own devotional time or as you're leading your family or as you're in your small group or as you're listening to SMED teach on Sundays or whatever else. Those are the disciplines that we want every man to grow in, starting with the ones in your own heart. So, um, try not to lose sight of that. Um, build is a success if you walk out of here in May, having understood all of those things and growing in your heart and your affections for those things. Okay, we're going to look at Matthew 13. We're going to look at the parable of the sower and the soils. Do you ever notice when you look at this parable that Jesus gives the parable and then he gives an explanation for what the parable is, but there is some space in between the parable itself and the explanation. And in each of the three gospel accounts that contain this parable, you see the same thing. Jesus gives the parable and he says, okay, here's the four soils. And then there's some conversation. And then there's the explanation of what everything means and who all the actors are in in the parable. What we're going to do here is we're going to look at the space between the parable itself and then the explanation of the parable. And that's verses 10 to 17. And the, the situation here is that if you look at verse 2 in chapter 13, large crowds have gathered to Jesus. Jesus is doing miracles. He's healing. He's turning water into wine. He's doing lots of things. And people are really attracted to Jesus. And so he gives this parable. And his disciples say to him in verse 10, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why don't you just speak to them in plain English? Verse 11, Jesus says, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. To them it has not been granted. I want you to see two things in verse 11 there. On one hand, you see mercy. It has been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to see God's justice as well. But to them it has not been granted at the end of verse 11. There's two people, there's two groups of people here. There's the you and there's the them. And the you are the ones who have the understanding or the knowledge of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And the them is the ones who have not been granted that same knowledge and understanding. And Jesus goes on and he he quotes Isaiah starting in verse 14. He's describing these people And he's describing what Isaiah was saying about Israel in the Old Testament. But Jesus is also importing that into the crowd that has onto the crowd that has come to follow him in verse 
14, he says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but not perceive. And verse 15 tells us why that is. And that is because the heart of this people has become dull. Drop down to verse 16. And Jesus says, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. And the way that relates to us this morning, if you are a follower of Christ and you're sitting there in the morning, you're sitting there in the evening, you're sitting there at your lunch break with your Bible open, in order to have a a really meaningful time with the Lord, there is a part of this that should start with gratitude. It says, God, you have given me, in verse 11, you have granted to me to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. At the point of salvation for you, you came to understand the basics of the gospel. You came to understand a holy God. You came to understand sinful mankind, yourself. And you came to understand reconciliation of those two things through a sacrifice on a cross, Jesus. You understood the basics of the gospel. So a part of every meeting with the Lord should be, Lord, thank you. Thank you for revealing the basics of the gospel to me, however long ago that was. In my case, that was 30-some years ago. And um, it is really helpful for me to remember that. However, my Bible has 1,750 pages in it. And I didn't know the full content of that the day I came to Christ. And so it is my task to enhance and cultivate and deepen my understanding of the knowledge of God through the reading of his word. And it starts again with a foundation of thankfulness and thanksgiving to God for what he's done for me that he has actually given me the beginning of what I really need. He's given me everything I need, and it is my, my privilege to grow my understanding of him, grow my understanding of what God is doing and how God works and what God's character is like through the reading of his word. So when you sit down with your Bible open, whenever that is in your day, whenever that is in your week, uh, be thinking about that, that God has opened the eyes of believers to, to make them able to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And he's been merciful to you and he's been kind to you to give you an understanding of the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven. And it is our privilege to to grow in that understanding as we read and we read and we read day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. Um, So use gratitude and thanksgiving to the Lord for his mercy to you and his kindness to you um, to to motivate you to, to deepen your understanding of him through the reading of the word time in prayer. Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. I've, um, I, I appreciate the opportunity to get to come in here and to, to speak to you and just open God's Word and look at um, and participate in really what a ministry that has been one of the most foundational, just transformative ministries in my own heart, my own life when I came to this church uh, 12, 12 or so years ago. Um, and uh, I felt like when I when I before I stepped into this classroom, I felt like okay, I've got I've got my handle on like theology. I mean, I didn't, but I thought I did, and I, I was ready to just to debate. I was ready to engage in conversation and wrangle over doctrine and wrangle over God's word. And and then I sat in here, and I realized, man, it's I, I can be next to God's word and not have it actually affect my own heart. And so this, this I'm incredibly appreciative for the ministry, this ministry, and the and the pastors who have just um, continue to point us to the importance of caring for our own heart with God's word. When we come to God's word, it's not just to read it to to learn, but to actually encounter the God of the word. And um, so I, I, it's with just gratitude that I'm here and getting to share God's word um, with you this morning. Um, I know there's a number of new people that I have not met before. I tried to meet everybody that I have not met before. I know there's probably two more of you out there, so I'll try to grab you afterwards. If, you, if not, grab me. Um, but this morning, we're going to be looking at four questions for my heart from Proverbs. Uh, really, this is looking at especially uh, Discipline 1, uh, but there's certainly a lot of carryover into Discipline 2 as we look at our home as well and consider how our heart impacts the way we step into relationships in our home and even outside of our home. Um, But before we start, if I can, on page one of your outline, and we're going to spend probably the first at least 60% of our time on page one and page two, the front back of it, so it's kind of more front-weighted. But on on page two, if you want to go to the bottom of your page, and if you can just write three three more verses at the bottom of it, I'm going to give you three references just in case we don't get to them. Hopefully by next year I can actually add them to the outline. Um, 
But underneath Proverbs 23, 17 at the bottom, if you just kind of would note the references for Proverbs 4.23, that's 4.23, uh, Proverbs 23.19, and Proverbs 25.28. So Proverbs 4.23, 23.19, and 25.28. So just in case we don't cover that, um, we kind of include that in the passages that we look at this morning. Um, but we're going to be looking at what the book of Proverbs has to say about the heart. And before we do that, I want to talk a little bit about the book of Proverbs. We want to be mindful just how a proverb works. Um, one author said, a proverb is a compressed statement of wisdom, artfully crafted to be striking, thought-provoking, memorable, and practical. So what, what Proverbs do, an individual proverb, it, it makes an observation about the world, and then it paints a memorable or evocative image in the words, in the very few words that it chooses to express that, that idea about what wise living looks like. And so Proverbs are really successful at being exactly what they are, and that is a proverb. But when we look at the book of Proverbs, we want to make sure to realize that Proverbs are different than promises of God. Uh, one author said, another author said in describing what a proverb is, says, a pr- Proverbs can convey pithy points and principles, so short, condensed, maybe sometimes terse or abrupt language, pithy points and principles, not precarious particular promises. <laughs> so when a proverb doesn't hold true in a given circumstance, it's not a failed prophecy or a failed promise of God. The book of Proverbs, by design, lays out observations that are meant to be memorized, they're meant to be pondered, but they're not always intended to be applied across the board to every situation without qualification. So just as we dive into Proverbs, keep that in mind. Uh, when this doesn't seem to hold true in your life, it is not the faithfulness of God. It is These are, these are general truisms. And so one very quick example that I think would, be, uh, would just help illustrate that, uh, you can turn there or I'll just read it. Um, is Proverbs 16, 7. And it reads, When a man's ways are pleasing to Yahweh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Right? So that principle is evident. Our relationship with God is more important. It's more determinative than our relationship with people. But yet, if we, if we kind of press those words into a promise for our here and now situations, we're going to run into tremendous grief. Or perhaps used in counseling others, we're going to cause tremendous grief in somebody else. Um, So does this verse demand that we assume that we must be displeasing God if somebody hates us? If, If pleasing God leads to our enemies being at peace with them, if somebody hates us, does that mean we are displeasing the Lord? And I think we need to look no further than an example of our Lord who was hated on the cross but had never done anything but please the Lord. So just an example that these things aren't going to hold true for every circumstance. So hopefully that kind of illustrates that point. And we want, to, we want to understand Proverbs alongside the rest of our wisdom literature, Job, Ecclesiastes. They're both full of examples that say, when, when one might say, see, look, I'm looking at the world and see evil doesn't get what it deserves. The righteous man only receives injustice. So Proverbs can't be true. Well, we want to understand all the wisdom literature books in our Bibles and how they complement one another and are understood in light of one another. So we want to keep Proverbs in their proper place. And from Proverbs, we're going to learn about what wise living looks like. And we don't want to despair when what we observe isn't exactly what we see in Proverbs. Um, And again, books like Job and Ecclesiastes really help us understand life in a sinful world, but with a sovereign God. So with that in mind, as just kind of our introduction, let's, if we can, just open in prayer. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you have recorded for us in your word. Um, We know that your son has become uh, true wisdom for us. And what would our wisdom look like without him? Um, Our wisdom would be hollow, it would be empty, and without your words, our wisdom would be be lies. Um, Thank you for the opportunity to bring ourselves under the wisdom of your word, 
Lord, may it shape and inform us that we might be um, transformed to be more pleasing to you today. In your name we pray. So as we look at what God says about the human heart in Proverbs, we're going to begin with God's wise assessment of the heart that should lead the believer to ask four questions. Four different questions we'll be looking at today. The first question, if you fill in the blanks, is do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment of my heart? So if you begin turning to the book of Proverbs, verse, chapter 20, verse 9, whose assessment of your heart do you value most? Um, what you see about your own heart or what God says about your heart? And that's what we want to do is look at a little bit more about what God has said about our heart. These are probably some passages that we may have even looked at in the course of looking at the uh, forced state, fo- uh, the, the trifold about man and man's heart and condition. But Proverbs 20, verse 9, we can read that together. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart? I am pure from my sin. Right, Proverbs 29 is in the form of a rhetorical question. It assumes a very specific answer. Who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? Well, what is the implied answer? No one. No one can say, I am... I've cleansed my heart, and I am pure from sin. Uh, This statement is a wise Old Testament believer advising his son that no one can claim in any given situation to have total or complete purity of heart or motive. You can't can't claim that. Um, So the heart, or the inner man, always has some corruption in it due to sin, and that's just the way it is, the the way we are today. And the Word of God reveals that your thoughts, your words, your attitudes, your deeds, your desires, all of them, uh, they're mixed. Our, our, our thoughts are affected by our fallen condition in ways that we can't even perceive. But the one that is in Christ has the ability to be influenced by truth and by good desires that are pleasing to the Lord as well. Right, at the same time, at the, at the same time as we are influenced by good desires, we also still have the influence of the flesh and sin. And so, because of that, um, you can't look at your thought life and say that was something that was a completely pure motive for doing something. Um, and so, that might be that be shocking. And as sinful men, though we know this, how easily do you get bent out of shape when someone questions your motives. And I will tell you firsthand that in my sinful condition, when I feel like my motives are questioned, uh, maybe, maybe when I feel like, my, let's bring it personal, when my, I feel like my wife is questioning my motives. Maybe she's not, but I feel that she is because I'm self-focused. And my heart is often so sinfully inclined to, to rush to defend myself. And to defend my, the purity of my motives. In fact, I will sin against my wife in order to prove to her and convince her of the purity of my motives. Does that sound familiar? That's the deception of my own sin, in my own heart, in your sin, in your heart. But the, the reality is our, our motives, they need to be questioned. Uh, but first and foremost, by us. As we enter into conversations with others, we want to be aware that our thoughts, our motives, our inner man are not pure. We're not pure. We're mixed. And remembering that as we step into relationships will, it, will it be transformative for those relationships. Uh, when I walk into something and I'm not bent on convinced that my desires are absolute or my motives are pure and that's not to say we can't think right thoughts right we can we can think right thoughts we can have right thoughts we can read god's word and we can think god's thoughts after him but in terms of what we say and in what we choose and how we are motivated we have to be careful about what we say and then how we assess our own hearts Uh, something to be to be aware of and just as a New Testament example, Paul wrestled with the same thing. Um, 
If you can turn in your New Testaments quickly, and we'll come back to Proverbs, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. I am conscious of nothing against myself. In other words, Paul, Paul had examined himself, and he wasn't aware of anything impure. But notice what he says next. Yet, I am not by this acquitted. What is it that he is admitting? I can't see impurity, but that doesn't mean that I'm guiltless. It doesn't mean it's not there. I'm not qualified to be my own judge. Verse 4 continues, But the one who examines me is the Lord. And therefore do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will bring both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Uh, there's things going on, Paul says, in the motives and in the heart that we're trying to get to the bottom of and that we're just not able to. And there will be times when you say, I just can't see that there would be any sin in this motive or in this decision or in this thing I'm pursuing. That doesn't mean that you're acquitted because you can't see it and you may not ever be aware of that motive until that time when the Lord comes and reveals those motives. Um, now, he might reveal it to, as, we, as we look at God's Word and disclose those things, but not all of them are we going to be able to get to the bottom even with God's Word. As a, just a way of reminder of some, of some examples of how we should be thinking, we want to continue just to let... Scripture to help us think rightly. Um, if you turn to the book of James, in some ways a, a New Testament collection of, of proverbial statements, but uh, turn to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious... And yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. James says it's possible to be deceived at the heart level. Right, So that's a mixed condition. Nobody in heaven is being deceived by their heart, but we can be. But also notice the connection that James sees between the heart and a man's speech. Right? An unbridled tongue is evidence of the deceived heart in, in, in this passage. Look, turn to James 2, verse 4. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Right? So James is writing and says, you, you in, in writing to Jewish believers that have been scattered... In the midst of yourself and how you're treating fellow believers, haven't you become judges with evil motives? It's possible to have evil motives as a believer. Uh, let's turn to James 3, verse 9. Speaking of the tongue, James says, With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God, from whom the, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Notice something very interesting in this passage, right? This is really describing a mixed mouth, a mouth that speaks two different things, both blessing and cursing. But notice that James includes himself in this when he says, we curse men. Notice he's, he's addressing his readers, my brethren, my brothers. He's not just talking to the world, though certainly there's unbelieving, professing believers, or professing believers that are not truly saved in the midst, but he's writing to those who profess Christ, to those who have been actually scattered. He's actually writing to them and saying to believers who have been scattered, potentially because of persecution, and he's writing to them, urging them to contend for joy despite their trials and tribulations, right? The opening, consider all joy, my brethren. This is not a... He's not urging unbelievers to find joy in the situation. There is no joy without Christ. He's writing to believers. And these same believers are the ones that he says, we need to be aware of evil motives in our hearts. 
and we can have tongues and that demonstrate a mixed mouth and the, the mouth comes, what comes out of the mouth comes out of the heart. And so everything he's pointing to is pointing to the fact that where does this mixed mouth come from? Where does this unbridled tongue come from? The unbridled tongue was evidence of a deceived heart. So when we, our tongues, we do not have control over what comes out of our mouth. It is evidencing the deception in our own hearts. It's not a mouth problem. It's a heart problem. Evil can reside in the heart of a believer. So if you have a difficult time controlling your speech and speaking with your wife or with your children or your parents, roommates, coworkers, the solution isn't simply to attempt to rein in our words. I just need to stop saying certain words, remove them from my vocabulary in order to bridle them. No, the heart needs to be addressed. The man who has bridled his tongue has actually bridled his heart. He's controlled his heart. And so how is your speech? What does it reveal about the condition of your heart? This is all in the, just as a reminder to be aware that we want to listen to what God's assessment of our heart is. And this is what is possible in a, in a heart, even in a heart that has been transformed. So do you value God's assessment of your heart more than your own? We are in an infinitely better condition in Christ than we ever were before, right? There was not, before, there was nothing in the heart that was pure ever before. There was no motive that was ever honoring to Christ before Christ saved us. Even the good that we might have done, right, in feeding our children as unbelievers, things that the Word describes to evil men who, who do well in caring for the children, even those good things as unbelievers was motivated by a, by a Jesus-less motive. And even though it was good, it didn't bring glory to Christ because Jesus was not at the center of it. But that is how we used to be. Now, it's so much better because there is actually the possibility of good things and good motives. And what we see in Proverbs 20, 29 is that to be able to claim now that this heart of mine is completely empty of any impurity is dangerous and it is to misunderstand what it means to live in a mixed condition. So, what shall we do in response? Each one of us needs to hold an appropriate suspicion over our own hearts because of this wisdom from God that is says, who can say I have cleansed myself from sin? And I think we tend to gravitate towards one or two extremes in this area. So some people are going to gravitate towards never, ever finding any good thing at any moment, at any time, at any place in our own hearts and maybe in the hearts of others, in the motives of others as we begin to judge not only we, we, as, we, as we ourselves start to judge other people's motives. But there's never anything good. I agree with Paul. I warn that I am. There's nothing good in me. Well, that man needs to be encouraged with, from Romans 15. All right, you can write that down if you want to. Here's Romans 15, verse 14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. You have been filled in Christ with a goodness that makes you able to care for others in the body of Christ. And this isn't about self-esteem. It's about recognizing that God has put into a clay vessel something that is good, and you have something to contribute to people around you in the body of Christ because of what God has actually performed in you and the fact that He resides in you and that you have His Word in front of you that you can share with others. So avoid the extreme of thinking that there is never ever anything good that I've ever done. But the other extreme is being prone to say, my motives are pure. Don't question my motives. Um, That person is trusting their own assessment of their heart. Watch for it when you're talking with your family, your parents, when you're ready to jump to defend yourself your motives, your actions. And think, what does it say about the character of a man who exercises the self-control to not rush to defend his motives? Even if what the person is saying is completely off-base and wrong, and this person has the ability to clearly discern his motives, is it still, does being right demand that we defend ourselves? 
Um, often we, we, our own self um, is in the focal point. But what if they're wrong? I've got to clear my name. Right, that's, that's what goes on in my head. It is, and I'm being done an injustice. They're not thinking rightly about me. They're attacking my character. Well, what if they're right and you just can't see it? Um, what did Jesus do? Isaiah 53.7, on the cross, he was wrongly right. 50, Isaiah 53.7, he was accused, he was afflicted, he was oppressed, and he didn't open his mouth. Sure, there, there's times that Jesus did in appropriate circumstances, but not every circumstance, even if someone's wrong, do we want to need to rush to defend ourselves? So just think of what it says about a man who exercises that self-control not to rush to defend his motives because he knows they might be right in just ways that I can't see. And what the kindness of God to actually use this person perhaps to help you see a blind spot. So we want to be influenced to navigate between those two poles. We want to say, as Paul, as far as I can tell, I can't see what, where the impurity of this motive is, but that doesn't mean I don't have it. And so, in fact, let's just open Scripture to help me see what I may not see on my own. Right? That, that's what we want our response to be in, in our relationships. Um, I did say this is going to be a very front-loaded message, um, so we're still on page one. We'll go down to the next verse. Proverbs 21, verse 2. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. But Yahweh weighs the hearts. You know how this feels. I don't know what I'm talking about yet. But how many times have you made your decision in your mind and you're telling somebody else about it? Maybe your wife and you're convinced this decision is flawless. I mean, I did my research. I mean, I got the first part of this verse down without anybody teaching me about it. My ways are right in my own eyes. The things that I choose, I chose them because not because I thought they were wrong, but because I thought they were the right thing to do. So we got the first part of this down. Every man's way is right in his own eyes. And sometimes it just seems impossible that the path that you've chosen is not the right path. Your self-assessment was at the extreme. We are far too easily impressed, sometimes with our ability um, to choose the right path, to walk, or to make the right choice, or take appropriate action. Right? We are we're influenced by things that we don't even realize that we are being influenced by. And not only that, even if it's not a sinful influence, just understanding the fallen state of man's mind, man's heart, uh, it doesn't function the way that it was originally designed to function in the garden. There's been effects of sin. But notice in verse 2, again, Proverbs 21, 2, what are our eyes? What is the object that our eyes are looking at in the first part of verse 2? Every man's way is right in his own eyes. That word is his way or his path. It's, it's the way that you're, that you're already traveling down. So it's the, it's the consequence of your choice or your actions. I, I'm going a direction, and it's right in my own eyes, and that's what they're looking at. But what Yahweh is weighing is actually the hearts. Our hearts, the inner you, the inner me. God is looking at that throughout the decision-making process, and His sight is far more trustworthy. And it's very easy for us to become completely unacquainted with our hearts throughout the day. Uh, we're, we are busy going down those paths, those ways that we've made decisions on, and that is what we're preoccupied with, what we're doing, the fruit of what we're seeing. Um, and we become unacquainted with our hearts, but yet God, that's what God is assessing us on, is what is our hearts. And He's always weighing the heart, and we want to value His assessment. The next verse we'll move down to is Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but he who walks wisely will be delivered. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six. So trusting 
Here's a question. Trusting in your own heart is contrasted with what in this verse? What is it contrasted with? Yep, walking wisely. There's a contrast here between trusting your own heart on one side and walking wisely on the other side. What does this proverb imply, by, again, by way of contrast, about the outcome for you if you do trust in your own heart? If, if he who walks wisely will be delivered, what is the implied outcome about the person you trust in their own heart who doesn't walk wisely? Uh, at least they will not be delivered, right? We'll just start with the opposite. What is the opposite of being delivered? It's not delivered. He, he, you need to be delivered from something that's some sort of coming consequence or coming judgment or coming army that's invading. Um, and so the opposite of that is you won't be delivered from that. You'll actually experience the consequences. You'll experience the judgment. You'll experience the army or whatever that's invading. Um, you're going to be remain in the current situation that you're in to experience all of the consequences that were coming to you. You're not going to be delivered from that. Trusting your own heart actually leads to entrapment. You're trapped in the consequences of that situation. So our, our hearts are capable of good. They're capable of deception as well. And trusting in it will lead to being, in, being trapped, to being in need of rescue from a circumstance that was created by our own foolishness that we cannot escape on our own. So then, a question for you, and, and really this is a caution, is do the results always reveal the, the heart condition? Then let me ask you another way. Does walking wisely always guarantee deliverance? And no, it doesn't. We need to be careful again, as we talked about Proverbs, that we don't take a passage like this and think, you know, I experienced really good results. I was in a situation and God delivered me out of it. So God appears to have blessed my decision, so my heart must have been pure. God appears to be blessing me, so I must be doing what's right. So Proverbs is written in a way that is generally true, but they don't describe the way things are going to be exactly every single time during the course of our lives without exception. So while it's generally true that if you, if you humble yourself, right, God will lift you up. Um, there are times, right, for example, when Job was humbled and he didn't get lifted up for a very, very long time. His deliverance was not immediate. So don't look simply to the results to evaluate or to justify trusting in your own heart. Right, that's, that's foolish, Proverbs 28, 26 says. Well, we'll move down to what possibly for you is a very familiar passage. I know growing up in, in the church, this is one that we had to memorize, we had to be quizzed on. Uh, Proverbs 3, 5 through 6. Trust in the Lord, or trust in Yahweh with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make your path straight. Anybody have a have a different version that reads differently on that verse? Everybody's using NASB or maybe the I can't remember what the ESV says. Uh, the way I learned this verse growing up is probably from the King James version. It's trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your, your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct thy paths. Right, that's that's the way I learned it. Um, and and I think. That translation is unfortunate because it probably led a lot of people to get the wrong idea about this verse. Um, so I want to address that. But first, let's just look at the clear negative command. Or I'm sorry, the positive command first. The positive command of this verse is concerning your inner man as a believer. Gather up all that you are inwardly, your whole heart, all of your heart before God and trust in Yahweh. Right? That is the command to trust in Yahweh and everything. And then the negative command is don't lean on or trust in your own understanding. Trust Yahweh, not your own understanding. And why? Right? 
there's been prior verses that have gone through the consequences of trusting your own heart. It's not, it's not described here. But as you, so as you move outward from yourself to the path that you have chosen from your own heart, you still need to acknowledge God as you walk. So Solomon begins making it clear for the Old Testament believer, there should always be a looking away from yourself to God at the heart level. And it's generally true that God will make your path straight. Um, let's talk, so let's talk about the, the second half of the verse. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Or the way and you might have learned it or I learned it, he will direct your paths. So the verb is probably best translated, make straight. So if you have a New American Standard Bible, that's what it says, make straight. Um, does somebody have the ESV? Remember what the ESV says? Make straight. Says, says make straight as well. The idea is not trust God and He will lead you down mm-hmm. the right paths or He will direct you to the right paths. Kind of the, the understanding that I had of this verse growing up. So if I just trust God, I'm going to know what to do in every situation because God's going to direct me. That's kind of how I understood this. Um, he'll even help me choose the right path. That's, again, or maybe a wrong understanding of this passage. Contrary to how, we, how I grew up thinking, this is not about God mystically revealing His will to me and helping me to make the right choices if I trust Him. That, that, that's not what's in focus. The idea here is not about choosing the right path. It's about trusting the Lord while you're already on the path that you've chosen. So in this verse, you're already going down a path. You already have a way or a direction that you're going. In fact, you might have chosen any number of paths. Notice he says in all your ways or in all your paths. So no matter what path you find yourself on, you must trust Yahweh. On any path, there are potentially obstacles. And probably some obstacles that you can see and other ones that you can't see. And while you're traveling this potentially dangerous path or way, the command comes, trust Yahweh with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And then what does Yahweh do? Yahweh smooths the path of the wise man who acknowledges and trusts him with each and every step. He actually actually makes the path straight, or he removes obstacles from the path that might have otherwise hindered him if he had trusted in himself as he traveled that path. I remember what we said earlier about how trusting in your own heart can lead to entrapment, the opposite of deliverance. A similar idea is right here in this verse. As you go down your chosen path, if you're trusting, if, you, if what you're doing is trusting in your own heart, you're going to find traps and obstacles as you travel down that path that are your own doing. But Yahweh is going to remove some of those traps and obstacles. He is actually going to smooth the path if you're trusting in him instead of your own heart. Right? Sure, there's going to still be obstacles. There will still be obstacles in this life. Right? We live in a fallen world. There will be obstacles as a result of God's sovereignty. There will be obstacles that are there simply because of man's sinfulness, ours and others. But don't let the obstacles that you encounter be solely because of the fact that you trusted in your own heart and not God's assessment. So we want to be careful of our own assessment of our hearts, but where do we go to find God's assessment? Open to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And you'll interact a little bit with this question on your homework. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrows and able to judge both the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You want to assess your own heart, lay it before God's word, which is able to decipher and to reveal its thoughts and intentions in a way that may be or will be blind to you without it. Uh, It's important to measure your own heart. 
but not to measure it so that you would trust in it, but so that you would look away from it and trust in Yahweh and acknowledge Him in everything, in all your ways, and listen to His assessment. And by the way, if the heart was always pure for a believer, why would we need God's Word to discern its thoughts and intentions? If it wasn't possible of deception, this command in Hebrews 4, or the statement in Hebrews 4 is actually unnecessary. right? But the, the reality is believers' hearts are deceived, and we need God's Word to reveal it. And by looking at this, how are we ever going to finish? Trust me, we'll, we'll get most of the way. Uh, we're going to go to number two now. Am I more, another question to ask yourself, am I more inclined to carefully control my heart or blindly follow my heart? And we have three Proverbs here listed for you, and actually I gave you three more to look at at the bottom of your page. Um, and we'll look at the first three of them together. So I'm just going to quickly read them. Um, for sake of time, you might want to, you can probably just read them from your page as well. Proverbs 6.25, Do not desire your, her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. Proverbs 7.25, Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, and do not stray into her paths. And the last one, Proverbs 23.17, Don't let your heart envy sinners, but live in the fear of Yahweh always. Solomon's clear expectation for his son is that his son would control his inner man. He would control his own heart. He would, he would, he would shepherd it. So control yourself in what sense? Don't desire her beauty in your heart. Right, that's on you, son. You're responsible for your heart. You're responsible for controlling it. If you desire her beauty, it's because you, you did not control your own heart. Don't do it. Also, don't let your heart turn aside to her ways. Don't look over there. Control your heart. And don't let your heart envy. So, so what do these verses imply about the believer's heart? They, they imply that the believer's heart is wayward. It needs to be controlled. It needs to be carefully watched over. This is why, I mean, this is why the language of, of shepherding your own heart. There's these sheep that are wayward. They will not controlled by the shepherd and protected, redirected, corrected by the shepherd. They will go astray. They will be wayward. Um, but not only that, not only are we threats to ourselves, our hearts are threat, our hearts are also deceptive to outside influences. Just as the sheep is, is prone and vulnerable to a wolf, so is our heart deceptive to things that are outside the safety and protection of, of, the, of the shepherd. And our hearts are drawn to things that would lead us into danger. Um, there's the familiar hymn, the, and if you didn't grow up singing hymns, maybe you don't know it, but prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. that sound familiar? When I hear that song, doesn't this song just ring true in your own heart? Like, that's how I feel. You know this by experience that it's true. Our hearts are wayward. But guess what? We all have wayward hearts, but like Solomon said to his son, it's your job to control it. You're responsible when it's out of control. You're accountable to keep it under control. You're not to trust it. So the, this is, again, the reason um, I don't, for the, the first extra verse I added was the reason for the command in Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You're responsible to control your heart, to watch over it, to protect it, to keep it free from danger. But it's not necessarily going to be easy. Watch over your heart with all diligence. It's going to take discipline and over and over and over diligent effort to do this. The heart is going to keep continuing to be wavered. It will always be wavered while we're here until Jesus appears and we're and we see him for what he is, and we were made like him, our heart will continue to be wayward until then. 
and it's going to take repetitive diligence to continue to shepherd it, to control it. Not something we can do once and be done, done with. This is, this is the daily discipline of when the alarm goes off and I don't want to go get up and I know I need to drag my, my wayward heart, my tired body in front of God's word because I need to hear from him, discern my thoughts and intentions because my heart is wayward. Um, write down. I actually I gave this verse to you to write down as well. Proverbs twenty three nineteen. Listen, my son, and be wise. Direct your heart in the way. Okay. Another word for it: just direct it. Shepherd your heart. Control your heart. If you blindly follow, what commands come out of your heart? You you might do some good things. Um, but we're not commanded to follow our hearts we're commanded to direct our hearts our direct hearts need to follow what we've directed it in not the other way around and so if we we allow ourselves to simply follow our hearts without instead turning to with armed with god's word to actually direct our hearts in the way it should go um we're going to experience some significant consequences and so you must control your heart, not let it control you. And that means, as Proverbs twenty three nineteen states, it needs to be directed. It doesn't naturally go down the right path because it needs directing and controlling. And so the question is, are you more inclined to carefully control your heart or blindly follow your heart? The unfortunate message of just about every Disney movie, right? Follow your heart. I have girls, I've watched all those movies and I've been tempted to jump into some sort of explanation at the end of everyone, but um, remember Proverbs twenty-eight, twenty-six, where you looked at that. He trusts in his own heart is a fool. Well the the other verse I gave you at the bottom is Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight. Like a city that is broken into without walls. City that is broken into without walls. It's pretty easy to break into a city that doesn't have walls pretty vulnerable to attack like a city that is broken into without walls so is a man who has no control over his spirit you are vulnerable and completely unprotected to temptation or to outward influences when you have no control over your heart and your inner man so that kind of leads us we talked about the heart's vulnerability do i know in what ways my heart is vulnerable I mean, we know how one of the ways it becomes vulnerable is that we're not caring for it. We're not protecting it. We're not controlling it. It creates an issue of vulnerability. Um, so in what ways is it vulnerable? There are two Proverbs listed here that can kind of show different ways that the heart can be weakened or brought down or made sick. And these aren't the only vulnerabilities of the heart. Just a couple examples. Proverbs twelve twenty five. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. What impact does the sin of anxiety have on your heart? And right in this passage, what's the impact? Weighs down the heart. Weighed down. It's weighed down. It's brought down. It sinks. Um, it, it sinks like a stone under the weight of the sin. Um, George Lawson, commenting on Proverbs, said something that was, I thought was helpful. Said the heart can sink to dis, to the depths of despair, where it can no longer apprehend gospel comforts, where it can no longer offer thanks to God. And have, has your own heart ever felt like this? Overcome by the worries and anxiety that I can't even remember the good things in my life that God has blessed me with. I'm, I'm not encouraged by the truths of salvation. So let's talk a little bit about anxiety. What is it? What is anxiety? When we are anxious, we are actually doing the exact opposite of Proverbs 3, 5. We are 
trusting in our own hearts. We are trusting in ourselves more than in the Lord. Let me say that again. When we are anxious, we are trusting more in ourselves than the Lord. So what do I, what do I mean by that? Well, look, look at our, our passage, uh, the, next, the next one. I'll make sure it's on the next one in the list. Is yeah the, at, at the end of Proverbs twenty twelve twenty five. Sorry, it's when we're, we're on. At the we'll start at the end of the verse. First, a good word makes the heart glad. A good word is necessarily a truthful word. A word's not going to be in the in the Proverbs writing. He's not going to consider a good word that's not truthful. So we're, we're talking about truth, and so. When we remind ourselves about truth or the gospel, what is true about God, his wisdom, his control over all things, his knowledge, we remind ourselves that this situation is not outside of God's control. It's not unknown to God. And there's no reason to have true anxiety over a situation. And that good work can actually be a welcome to our soul but when we find ourselves in a in a difficult situation, it's easy, and we've, we've been there, we begin to become anxious. What are we actually doing? We're actually doubting God's goodness. We're doubting his wisdom. I might be doubting his care, doubting his sovereignty. Um... What we're actually doing is we're responding in unbelief towards his promises to cause all things to work out for our good. God has revealed that clearly for believers that every situation is intended for our good. And when I am tempted to anxiety, it says something about my current state of my heart in believing what God has said and doubting that it's true. So instead of trusting in God, his character, his word, instead we can become convinced that it's up to us to find a way out of this situation. And we know, and we know from our friends, the experiences that we've gone through, there are experiences that are really incredibly difficult. And we can realize very, very quickly that we are way over our head. And while we're attempting to seize control over a situation, we're often very well aware that we have, there's not a whole lot of, in us, in our capacity to actually change the situation, and quickly that begins to lead us to despair. I'm trusting in my own abilities to, to fix the situation, and I realize it's not working, and now I'm despairing because I've been trusting in my own abilities. So how is your heart vulnerable in the midst of difficulties and trials, when it's not bolstered by the truth of who God is and what He has actually revealed in His Word, our heart's vulnerable. When you're in a difficult situation that tests your limits, your heart is vulnerable. Anxiety is a, is a heart-shepherding moment. Can I trust the Lord in the midst of this situation? Uh, we, we sin because we're leaning on our own understanding. We're not acknowledging him in this current situation, in this particular way or path. We're certainly not acknowledging his sovereignty. We're not acknowledging his goodness. Uh, when we're anxious, we're actually, we're actually fighting with God for sovereignty over our lives. I don't know if you, ever, you, you think about it like that. We, we often tend to think of anxiety just simply as a personality trait rather than a sin that is taking place in the heart where I'm doubting God's goodness, I'm doubting his word, and I am trying to wrestle sovereignty from him because I don't trust him. Uh, Man, anxiety is not the opposite of somebody who's optimistic. It's not a personality trait, but it's a system, it's a symptom of our pride, our discontentment, and our lack of trust in God and what he has said. And that's a sign of unbelief in the heart. And again, it's not that the situation isn't difficult. um, But it just underscores our need to trust in him. What's the good news? Look how easily the anxious heart 
um, and can be encouraged. Your heart might be sinking to the depths where the gospel just seems unbelievable. Your hope seems to have vanished. But then notice how the verse ends. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Whether that good word is God's word, an encouraging word from a friend that is grounded in truth, our hearts can be encouraged. There is hope. The heart can find hope in a good word. Don't underestimate the effectiveness of truth and encouragement from God's word and from within the body of Christ in helping a wayward heart turn away from sinful anxiety. And this person is in a difficult situation. Don't just share Bible verses with me. That's what we can think. No, they need to hear from God's word. Yeah, I mean, there's a way that we can, we can probably do damage with the way we're, we're caring for them. But the, the, the heart of it, though, they need to be cared for in God's word. And, there's, and they're cared for with God's word. And there's a skillful way to do that. Um, but that is what the heart needs. Uh, the next one, and we are quickly running out of time, but uh, just quickly, let's go to the next one. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Proverbs thirteen twelve. Um, this is this word is really just translated as hope or expectation. Um, hope in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is not something that you're just wishing for. I hope to win the lottery. Instead, it's something that you fully expect that you have assurance and confidence is going to come to pass. Right? It's an indication that you have put your trust in a future reality. So for the believer, our hope, our expectation, our trust is in the Lord. And there's no uncertainty about it. And that's why for the believer, biblical hope is always something that's only ever an encouragement for the believer. And it infer, further encourages confidence in the future. But the reality of our hearts is that it's actually to place our hope in the wrong place. And that's what's in view in this passage. Proverbs 13, 12 pictures a hope that is placed in something other than in God's word. It's like a carrot on the stick. You're hoping for something. Something is dangling in front of you. You take a couple steps towards it, but it just keeps seeming to be put off. It's always out of reach. That hope is deferred. Maybe you'll get another time, maybe not. And so what sort of impact does this deferred hope have on our heart when you put your confidence in something that fails to deliver? It makes the heart sick. It's disheartening. So we need to be careful about what people and pursuits we put our hopes in. If they fall through, our hearts will be affected. There's going to be an impact on us. There will be. We're, our hearts are vulnerable to placing our hope in something other than the Lord and then prone to sickness and distress when our hearts are frustrated. Um, there's more to say about that, but we will quickly go to the last one. Um, when I am in trouble, do I ever back up? So number four, when I am in trouble, do I ever back up and consider my heart? Before destruction, this is Proverbs 18:12. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. That is, that is, the heart of man is prideful or arrogant. The heart of man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Let's remember what we said earlier. Again, these are generally generalizations that are generally true in life. They're not true in every situation, every time. So if you come upon destruction or a life that is spiritually undone, or a ministry that's undone, or a relationship that's unraveling, the presence of the destruction isn't necessarily an indication that, yes, there was, there was pride at its heart. Uh, but it is an opportunity to stop and evaluate the impact and the influence pride possibly had on that situation. That it possibly had in bringing that destru- destruction because before destruction, the heart of man is prideful. Proverbs 28, 14 how blessed is a man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Um, the presence of calamity is an opportunity also to evaluate the hardness or the softness of our hearts. What was the condition of my heart before this calamity? And again, just because you're in the midst of that destruction, it may not automatically mean that arrogance or hardness of heart was there. 
Right, again, the example of Job, whose life was one big calamity. But the writer of Job is actually very careful to tell us that Job did not sin to bring about this destruction. His heart, his heart actually seemed to be soft. So the presence of calamity is an opportunity to evaluate the hardness of heart that might have possibly brought about the situation. And not, not true. And notice what this is contrasted with. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity is contrasted with fearing always. So we aren't to be those who harden our heart, but to be those who fear always. And so in the context of Proverbs, what does that refer to? The fear of the Lord, the one who is walking in wisdom. So with uh, we will we'll end there, but I think there is some important truths about how we how we come upon others in our in our lives, in our church, and we see their lives seem to be undone, they're experiencing calamity. We have an opportunity to come alongside them and, and help them think. You know, what are what are the, the roles that what was their heart condition before this calamity? It, it, this might be a result of that, but we will we'll do harm to assume that is the case. We'll be like Job's friends. And so in our own hearts, when we find ourselves in destruction and calamity and brokenness, it's helpful for us to evaluate that often those can be the results of, of pride and arrogance and hardness of heart, and God sometimes uses those things to get our attention. Um, but it's not a guarantee of it. But it is an opportunity for us to evaluate that in our own hearts. So in, uh, in conclusion, today we've been looking at the four questions that we should ask ourselves on a regular basis about our heart from the book of Proverbs. Do I value God's assessment of my heart more than my own assessment? Am I more inclined to carefully control my heart? Or do I blindly follow my heart? Do I know the ways that my heart is vulnerable? And when trouble com- comes... Will I back up and measure the condition of my heart before that? Uh, let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you, Father, for the opportunity to look at our hearts from God's Word, and I pray that you'd help us just to keep the proper balance that that truth will bring to our, to our lives, and I pray that you'd keep us from the extremes that we talked about, and I pray that we would have an appropriate suspicion of our own hearts. Um, Lord, we know that you have accomplished good in us, but we also know that we still um, live under the impacts and effects of sin. And we pray that uh, you would keep us men from a lack of suspicion where we are convinced there's nothing wrong with the motives of our hearts. Um, Help us to be weighed down. Help us to be uh, measured by your truth and to turn to your truth for guidance. Um, Lord, what, an, what sort of an impact uh, would it be if we are men who were characterized not by those who rush to defend our own motives, but Lord, take it as an opportunity when, when our motives are questioned to realize this might be you helping us to see something that we were previously unaware of. Lord, may that be transformative for the relationships in our home, in our church, in our workplaces. Um, Lord, help us to walk wisely, trusting in what you have revealed about us in your word, and not in our own hearts, our understanding, our own planning, and our own abilities. It's in your name we pray. Amen.